Hey everybody, it is episode 65 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is patching in to me from Colorado today. Hey Steve, how are you? I'm doing great. We are talking today about general health maintenance for athletes. I'll tell a little bit of a story later about why we're talking about this, but we want to remind you and those listening that even if you can run an hour or two hours or three hours on a Saturday long run, that doesn't mean that you're bulletproof and it means you've got to stay on top of general health maintenance. So we've got a doctor on the show to just talk to us about general health maintenance for athletes and really for anyone so that we're reminded that there's some important things out there that we need to start getting checked regularly as we age. And so we'll cover all of that and what you should be thinking about in terms of your general routine maintenance. So we'll get to that in a second. As we jump in here, Steve, we kind of have to start on a, a little bit of a somber note, which is that the great Roger Bannister, who broke the four-minute mile, died this week at the age of 88 years old. He was not just a pioneer from a running standpoint, but also a pioneer in several fields that many people don't know about. But if you go and you read any of the articles, there's some really good ones in the New York Times in terms of his obituary, as well as in the New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell. I'll link to some of those articles in the show notes. But if you read his life story, it wasn't really the breaking the four in his mind was sort of one of the smaller accomplishments in his life. But ultimately, he went on to be a leader in neurological research. He was a leader in, in access for kids and young athletes in Britain in terms of helping build awareness and facilities for the up-and-coming athletes in Britain. In fact, it was one of the reasons why he was knighted as Sir Roger Bannister was his contribution not only to athletics as an athlete himself, but also post-athletics in terms of building opportunities for others to compete and fall in love with the sport and with moving through space, as we've talked about before. So it's, it's sad to lose him, but you know, I think he, he lived a pretty damn full life. Absolutely, Chris. I mean, I read all those. I'm kind of a Roger Bannister. I just, he's, I'm a huge fan of his, as I think almost everybody is. He, he, not only did he revolutionize the sport by taking it from, uh, taking something that everyone thought would never happen, like, you know, getting to the moon or making it to Mars, but he did it in such a way, he did it as an everyday average guy. I mean, he was a doctor, but I mean, he still was, he was an everyman. He wasn't some kind of freak that, that couldn't, that was, that was just, he was, he was a regular everyday person in a lot of ways. And I think that also the other thing is I think a lot of people, um, you know, especially as I was uh, coming up in the ranks as a runner, I thought so many people just failed to give him the credit that he deserved for the boundary that he, that he knocked down and the barrier that he, that he went through um, that had like kind of been to the point where, people thought it would never happen. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked last week a little bit with, uh, Alex Hutchinson about this and a little bit about Dr. Ban about Dr. Bannister, but, um, it's sad to hear this, but it, uh, it, it does give us an opportunity to, to really be grateful and thankful for the accomplishment that he's done for the world of running. And in my opinion, sports in general, it's made it, uh, made it accessible to the every, every person, in my opinion. For sure. I got, I rewatched and retweeted this week the, the video of him running 
the the 359 that he ran and he was narrating the video that I particular video that I watched kind of giving a little bit of color on his thought process throughout the race. And he's someone that pioneered a lot of our early thinking about pacemaking and pace setting and ultimately had two pace setters in the race with him that became a big part of his ability to break that barrier. But it was funny in the early parts of that narration, he talked about how he was worried about their pace and they came through, I think in 57 seconds for the first lap. And he thought before he got that split, he thought they were going to slow. And so he was yelling up to, his pace setter to go faster, go faster. And, and the guy ultimately stayed in rhythm, which was, which was a good thing. Cause they were you know, already going at 57 pace. And then at some point he said about the third lap, he just stopped worrying about it altogether and just basically relax, tried to relax and run. And so it was cool to kind of hear him talk about his thought process through that experience. But the reminder being that oftentimes for me, at least oftentimes we get, too wrapped around paces in our head of what we should be doing and where we should be at this point versus just letting it go sometimes and feeling and, you know, and relaxing and letting your rhythm take you. And ultimately he did that over those final two laps and collapsed at the finish line into the arms of the spectators there. So it was pretty cool to see. I'll, I'll post a link to that video as well. You know, Chris, I also suggest last, uh, last year or maybe it's now been two years there was a movie made called Bannister Everest on the track. And I don't know if, I don't know if you've seen that, Chris, but uh, it's really, really good. It's, it's an hour long, um, which I don't think is too long. If you listen to our podcast, you could probably handle an hour, but it's incredibly well done. And I think it's something like $4 or $5 or something like that to rent it on, on Amazon. But um, I highly recommend that as a, a, as a way to sort of immerse yourself in the history and um, and also to get a bit of a feel for Roger Bannister, the human being, the man, which uh, I think is from every – I never had an opportunity to meet him, but from what everybody says, for those who did have an opportunity to meet him, who he was as a person um, and as a man uh, was was more impressive than anything else. So um, I highly recommend yeah. that movie for those who might have an hour of time to, to, to reflect on it. Yeah, a true, a true gentleman – in every sense of the word, both in sport and in life. So RIP Roger, Sir Roger. And like I mentioned, we'll share some of those links to the articles and the video. So you can check those out because people way more eloquent than us have written about his life in ways that are certainly worth reading this week. So with that, we'll turn to our world champs recap. Steve, we went head to head with our predictions some of you may have listened to our preview show, our separate special edition preview show last week. We've got to come back to this and and let the world know that you and I tied in our <laughs> prediction contest. Initially, I thought I'd pulled it out by one point, but after my final tally that I did yesterday, you and I tied 12 points to 12 points. And we we did okay, but this the story of this world championships, maybe above and beyond the athlete performances, which is a kind of a shame, were the disqualifications that happened and and some of the issues with the meat management, Steve, which I wanted to kind of start there just to give people a general sense. You know, as as a matter of perspective, three of the podium people that podium athletes that I picked in the top three in their events were disqualified. And a lot <laughs> of these were big names. We're talking about 
Paul Chalimo, Donovan Brazier, and Wambui. And so with the women's 800, so some big names disqualified. We had some other athletes like uh, Emmanuel Career who couldn't get in because of a visa issue. Same with Suleiman in the 15. Some visa issues and disqualifications. I think they had something like 12 athletes get disqualified in the 400 across men's and women's. They had an entire heat of the 400 get <laughs> so what's the deal for for the average fan who may have been watching this or seeing some of the results is this abnormal what was happening is this an issue with beat management or is this just the athletes doing bad things it's a free it's a it's freakish okay what usually one or two athletes might get disqualified um but typically those disqualifications are things that people will like like for instance chris the disagreement you and I had about the women's 3000 meter, um, which at the end of the race turned into a little, turned into a real battle for the, for the second and third positions. And, um, Laura Muir and, uh, Sifan Hassan tangle, didn't really tangle up, but you and I disagreed whether Sifan Hassan had, should be disqualified for that. And it, one way or another, it doesn't really matter because that's what you normally see when you watch a world championship and maybe have a disqualification or not, is that you see something something where it's arguable, um, but it's you understand it, right? Of course, it, 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 but what we saw at this world championships, Chris, was just freakish, especially with the number of people that were running out of a lane or off of the track. Now, we got to hear a couple of interviews from some of the runners out there, especially um, from uh, – what's the steeplechaser? I'm forgetting her Colleen, name right now. Colleen Quigley. Colleen, yeah, Colleen Quigley, who basically called out the meet, meet directors and the meet management because she said that none of the athletes really had, had an opportunity to get onto that track before the race. They had some uh, that, and that's very unusual. Usually, athletes will get an opportunity to get on to the race, the course that the, the actual track that they'll run on before the race, and that's in, especially important on an indoor facility, Chris, because each track has a little bit of a different way that they bank the turns and the curves. Some of these tracks, most of the really fancy, nice ones, they can actually adjust the 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 height and the 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 amount of curve amount of bank that there is. So basically what a bank is, is that as you run on the straightaways, they're flat, but as you come into the curves, they will put a bank, an artificial bank up or lifted the second lane up a little bit, the third lane up a little bit, the fourth lane up a little bit to simulate what it will feel like to be on a flat track or to make sure that you don't break your ankles as you're running on a short 200 meter track. So they bank them. But this track evidently was especially banked and distance runners are absolutely not used to this because they don't usually train on indoor facilities. And if they didn't get a chance to get out onto that course beforehand or onto that track beforehand, it can make all kinds of problems. And that's what we saw. Um, so, you know, it, in my opinion, in this situation, it's much easier to say what, the, what, what the rule book reads, or at least it's supposed to read is did the athlete gain any advantage and in almost every case that we saw, Chris, no one gained an advantage. In fact, they were disadvantaged in most cases, especially Chalimo, who basically nearly fell down but got himself back onto the track, took only really one step off the track. 
it, it's just ridiculous what they what they did here um, and why they chose to do this. We saw we saw Mo Farah at the World Championships last year, Chris. This year stepped off the track and he did not get disqualified. So why now are you disqualifying every single time that you see it? It just doesn't make any sense. And it's just ridiculous. Um, Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. The disqualifications were not because an athlete elbowed somebody and impeded them. They were from stepping on the line, stepping on the inside of the track, all stuff that might've been avoided had these athletes had a chance to actually get familiar with the track, but they didn't get to. They got thrown out of them out there many times for the first time in a, in a heat that mattered in the case of those 400s. And a lot of the disqualifications came in the heats too, which to me is even more silly. Absolutely. Because, you know, because again, unless you gain an advantage, who really cares if you barely step on a line in a heat? And, you know, the final isn't on the line. The, the medals aren't on the line in that moment. So it seems like you would have a little looser interpretation of the issues in that situation, but they didn't. And so as a result, for a lot of these finals, you didn't have the best athletes on the track. And as a result, the athletes lose, the fans lose. Nobody wins. Yeah. I, I, and, I don't know if you read Alan Abr- Abramson's um, uh, article about it, but he his article was titled, A Wave of DQs. Why does track and field insist on such self-inflicted buzzkill? <laughs> Which is true. But this quote is great, Chris. His quote says, so dumb, so unnecessary, so counterproductive. In the NBA finals, the refs let them play. Same for the NFL. In the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, you basically have to commit a felony to get called for a penalty. <laughs> you know, And uh, that really sums up what the way I felt about it. It made me not even want to watch, Chris, not even want to look at the results and see, um, which is a shame because we saw some great – we did see some amazing performances out there, didn't we? We did. We did. And to me, the main issue, though, is the inconsistent application of the rules. It's fine. If you have a rule and you're always enforcing it 100% and that's the deal and everybody knows it, fine, let it be. But in this case, where there's where's that sort of gray area of did you get an advantage to inconsistently apply that in these situations is just stupid to me. So just like... USATF, IWF needs to get their act together on this and decide. Either live in the comfortable gray of did you get an advantage or draw the black and white and apply that consistently no matter what. Right. And I think once that happens, everyone will be able to adjust their the way they handle it, you know, and you know, the, right. the coaches out coaches out there will do everything they, they can to try to put their athletes in difficult situ- scenarios that they can overcome that, you know? So, um, but it is such a, such a disappointment, but. So but we did have some great things. Let's re- I mean, we, did have, we some- did have some great things. Let's recap some of these events. I don't want to necessarily cover all of them, but we've got to talk about Debaba's double. She won, as I predicted, the women's three K and then came back and doubled in the, in the 15 to win the gold in both second time she's done that double at a world championship. The, it, it was, I mean, obviously she had a, at least some closer followers in that Mir and Hassan basically traded places behind her in those two events. But both of those races started out fairly similarly, fairly slow. And then the Baba basically crushed the last one K 
you know, 800 to 1K of both of them to the point where she put five to 10 seconds on the rest of the field in a thousand meters. <laughs> like she literally made everybody else just look silly. So what's your take on Debaba's results here? I mean, I think this is, the, this is, I think at this world championship, she was at, at clean or at least as clean as you would ever call her. I mean, you know that I feel, I've, I've felt for many years that Debaba is a drug cheat. Um, her coach, um, her coach went, was arrested for this in Spain and, um, you know, her results a couple of years ago were so off the charts, incredible for her 15. She looked a little more human here, Chris, but the way that she was able to run away from people, um, just tells me that, that I just don't, I mean, Hassan and Muir are are at the top of their games and they're as good as any two women have ever been in those two events. And Dababa just ran away from them. And uh, it's just that 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 really, truly makes it hard for me to be happy for her. Um, but I thought Laura Muir stood out. I think this she'll look will the world will look back at this world indoor championships and say that if that Laura Muir really broke through here. And I think she's. I think she's a real – someone people are going to be having to look at for world championships and Olympic gold in the coming years um, because she's learning how to race more effectively. She's finding the finish line better, and so her strategies seem to be better than they have been in the past. Um, and, you know, she's also studying – she's also studying something like microbiology at a PhD level or something. I don't know. It's crazy. But – She's uh, sort of following in the footsteps of Roger Bannister and continuing to be her real life uh, to running in parallel to this incredible now world-class um, running career that she's, that she's making for herself. Yeah, she earned her first two global championship medals, third in the 3K and second in the 15. You could argue she should have had the silver in the, in the 3K as well because she, by some opinions like yours, was impeded by... Hassan coming down that straightaway at the end, but huge breakthrough for her because she's kind of been knocking on the door for a long time and always ended up as a bridesmaid fourth usually or fifth. And so it was nice to see her break through and be able to run with clean or not arguably the greatest 15, three K runner ever in Dababa on the women's side. Yeah. So, Impressive to see that. We'll, I'm sure, see more from her now that she's kind of had the breakthrough here at the world level. We've also got to talk about Shelby Houlihan here. She finished fifth fifth in the 3K, fourth in the 1500. Kind of got caught out on both moves in both races, so she was just a little bit out of position or a little late to react to the big moves by Dababa on both races, but still finished really solidly and in the case of the 3K, came from way behind to even get fifth. So you got to believe that even though she didn't get the medal she wanted, that she'll walk away from this ultimately and think about this as a big stepping stone for her on the world stage as well. Yeah, I totally agree, Chris. And I was a little disappointed with her results, not because I thought she was going to win a medal, but just because she sort of played the strategy in both races wrong in the same way. She was a little closer in the 15, which allowed her to get fourth. But I mean, she, I thought she acquitted herself admirably. I hopefully she'll walk away with this a little frustrated so that we get a more strategically minded Shelby Houlihan at future races. But, um, you know, 
But Laura Muir, I mean, if even if Shelby had been in a position that she needed to be in, I don't think she would have meddled. You know what I mean? I think that these three were just better, but I don't know that they will stay way better for the long haul. Well, I mean, Dababa will, but uh, and and Shelby's really the one of these athletes who's more of a five k runner than the others. So this is really playing out well for her as she goes into the outdoor campaign. And as you know, this year we don't have any world championships, but. Uh, we do have still a long, and um, she'll have a long, could have a long and fruitful outdoor season, which could put her in a great position for 2019 World Championships. And super excited to see where she, how she continues to improve. Um, so that was really exciting, Chris. I also thought um, the women's eight was uh, an incredible race, um, and I, I think that. You know, Aju Wilson did everything she could possibly do. She threw everything she could throw at Nian Saba to beat her. But Nian Saba is literally a man among girls. And so it didn't, it wasn't to be, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She's got the extra chromosome action. And so it's hard to beat that. And we didn't even talk about Nian Saba because in the start list we looked at, she wasn't there. Right. At least originally. But I think because she was the defending champion, she was able to kind of get added late. She hadn't raced really, so we didn't really know what to expect. But she showed up in typical style and and won. The fact that the fact that Caster Semenya wasn't here meant that she was sort of the next one on the list of of uh, world beaters. You know, with with her having the Olympic silver medal. But you're right. Wilson did everything you could ask of her. I mean, and I just love watching her race, especially in the heat in the heat because she was, she's just for being someone so young, she's such a composed, cool as a cucumber athlete and tactically just so sound. She's not going to get beat. Chris. Because she's of so smooth. Oh, yeah, so smooth. You know? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So it's cool to see her get the silver and pretty much, as you said, do everything that she could to be there. So, you know, if if I'm Aji Wilson, I'm I'm happy with this result, even if it was silver again at the indoor world champs instead of gold. She did everything she could. On the men's side, we've got to talk about the men's eight. Drew Wendell. Drew wow. motherfucking Wendell. Got a <laughs> silver medal, man. I yeah. mean, this was obviously aided by Manuel Career's visa issue and Donovan Brazier stepping on the line and getting DQ'd in the heat, but but the fact that Drew Wendell American got silver in this is huge. You know, beat the the Polish athlete Scott and or, or sorry, got second to the Polish athlete Scott that we had predicted would be on the podium and did it in typical Drew Wendell style. I thought, you know, maybe he would be too far back as I was watching it, but stayed stayed patient, stayed in his zone in terms of his strengths. Stayed at the back and then made a move on that last lap to come around everybody and get second. And he almost got DQ'd. Thankfully, they came to their senses and 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 did not. That that was the most ridiculous DQ I think I've ever seen in my life. Thankfully, they calmer heads prevailed and someone someone made that change because all he did was defend his position. And anyway, it was it was amazing race. I thought he. Uh, it's exciting. I, I'm I'm excited to see. He's getting better and better, Chris. Better and better and better. And I think that's the first medal for the Brooks Beast. Yep. 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 So that's that's huge and a great uh, a great 
uh, a great result for a group that has put their money where their mouth is and a corporation that has decided to support athletes for the right reasons and a great coach and athlete group there that are that you know are on the up and up and are doing great things to get a result like that is just fantastic and I couldn't be happier for Danny Mackey and the Brooks Beast group just a great result and I think there's more to come especially from Drew Wendell I don't think you've seen the last of him that's for sure yeah, I love his confidence and the fact that he believes he belongs among the best in the world even though everybody else has doubted him and so to see that confidence play out here, in a lot of ways, he's obviously a very different profile of a runner, but his strengths now are very similar to Nick Simmons when he was up and coming in that they were both great closers. And, and ultimately, Simmons learned that he needed to run a little bit further up into the pack, you know, mid-pack instead of at the back of the pack in order to get better and better results as time went on. And I think you'll see Drew kind of learn and play with those tactics over time so he can win a variety of racing styles and not just ones where he can sit the back and kick. But it's kind of cool to see that development and to see his confidence build. And I mean, he, he wasn't afraid at all on the starting line, which is, which is huge. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the men's 15 and then 3K. But on the men's 15 side, I mean, this was, as we talked about, a complete and utter crapshoot, although you predicted successfully the Ethiopian win and the men's 15 with the young athlete Tafera getting first, as you predicted. You also predicted Iguadir would be on the podium, although you had him second instead of third. And so this race, I guess, played out more like you would have expected. We both predicted it would be a slow race, which it was. I think their final times were in the, in the high 350s. Which for a 1500 for men is pretty damn slow. I think the top eight athletes were all within a second of each other. So you had all of them standing around kind of slowly jogging, waiting for that big kick. And ultimately the young Ethiopian got it done. Yeah, it was a great race. I mean, it, it's, it's always sucks to see a race like that, that goes slow because you wonder if the best, you know, are, are winning in that scenario. And you, you certainly have to say that, and in that kind of a situation, the guys at the back are the ones to blame because they didn't do anything about it. So, um, but I mean, when that race went, it went, <laughs> it was, it was incredible how quickly, uh, that race blew open. And, um, you know, the same, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, I think the names weren't household names and there weren't any Americans in the mix really Blankenship did get fifth, which was pretty solid result. Um, and I think angles was great to get into the final. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the young Ethiopians, both in Tafera and in the three K in Borrega, we've got two Ethiopians who are going to be able to make a charge at, uh, the two Kenyans who are at the top of the heap in the 15 right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the European circuit, um, this summer. Yeah, and on the men's 3K side, it was sort of as we predicted, the Ethiopian athletes dominating the top. We had hoped Chalima would be in the mix, but alas, the DQ kept him out of the final. I think but you had the defend, defending champion. What's that? I think Chalima could have won that race. I agree. I mean, I agree. We both thought that Borrega might be the man to beat. Ultimately, his countryman, Kajelka, who had won the last indoor world championships, got the win. 
But I agree with you. I mean, he was, I think he would have won as I had predicted, but alas, stepped on the inside of the track and couldn't compete. But he had three Ethiopians in the top four with the Kenyan athlete sneaking up into the third position just ahead of Geberwet, who I predicted might be third, but he ended up fourth. Yeah. So kind of what we predicted there, but without Chalimo in the mix. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a shame. We'd really have loved to have seen him in there. And I think he could have gotten his first world title. He'll just have to wait a little while. Right. (laughs) Beyond that, the overall story for the U S at this indoor world championships across all events, including the sprints and the field events was one of absolute ringing success. I think the U S led the medal table with 18 medals and the next highest count was Ethiopia with five, I believe. And so you just had, um, sorry, um, Ethiopia had five, Great Britain ended up with seven. So basically the U S won the medal count by 11 medals had six golds, 10 silvers, two bronze. So huge results into the sprints events. Christian Coleman, 60 meter now world record holder on the indoor side, got the gold there as expected. He's a name on the sprint side that everybody should be looking out for as we move to outdoors. Vashti Cunningham got a silver with a big result for her as the young high jumper up and coming that I think we'll see make big waves as she continues to grow. Sandy Morris in the pole vault got her first gold medal at a world at a world level event, which is which is a huge result for her. And she did it with two massive contusions. I don't know if you saw the picture. She landed on her pole twice, once on her arm and one on her on her thigh. Had these just massive welts from those falls that that didn't keep her from getting the gold. So lots of cool results across the boards for the US. Yeah, you didn't mention the biggest one, Chris. Courtney Ocolo gets a gold medal on the fourth. Texas X. All around amazing young woman who is, you know, past Bowerman winner. Absolutely one of the great athletes I've ever been around and one of the greatest people I've ever been around. I was I had the opportunity to work. I didn't get I didn't coach Courtney, but I was around her a lot in the years that I was at Texas when she was there. Kept trying to get her to run the eight. You know, she ran the eight when she was in high school, but she refused to run it when she got to college. And, you know, goodness knows she didn't need to. She's so good at <laughs> the four. And um, I do tell people, though, if Courtney Ocolo ever decided to move up to the eight, everybody's in deep, deep trouble. So um, <laughs> but I was so happy for her, Chris. That's a huge result for her and a great vindication of for kind of a lackluster final year where she didn't get all the things that she wanted in her senior season, but now she's a world champion and she'll be taking that into what I imagine to be an incredible, incredible summer and looking forward to her at the world and, and Olympic games. I think this is one of those huge things that sort of takes a big, a big weight off her shoulders about being able to get the job done at a major meet. Um, and, uh, and she did it in, in fine style. She was, she, she ran an incredible race and, I'm super proud of her. That's that's a great thing. Following in the footsteps of the great Sandy Richards Ross. Yes. Who was also a UT alum. She, Courtney also got the gold in the four by four, which was a big result for the Americans in the four by four. And if you can find it, go rewatch the four by four in the men's. (laughs) the, The Polish, the Polish team beat the Americans by what? Two tenths of a second. 
to get the world indoor record in the four by four and a come from behind win that was really exciting to watch. So if you can go watch the the men's four by four indoor, the US ended up silver, but it was an incredibly exciting race. If you go back and watch it though, our listeners should go back and watch it and pay attention to the third leg because everybody's going to pay attention to the last leg because that's where the final move happens. And what, but the difference between the U, Aldrich Bailey's um, 400 and the Polish athletes 400 in that third leg, that was where the race happened. The Polish athlete ran a full second faster in that. That is a huge amount of distance that he made up in that race. And, and it gave them a chance to be able to close at the end. And the Polish closer, the Polish, uh, they're, 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 four by four anchor was is just one of those guys who you know can find a fit he looks like one of those kids who when he was two he was finding the finish line on his on everybody you know he he just he just looked like he was gonna he was going for it no matter what you know what i mean so i i do highly recommend our folks go back and listen go back and watch that um but do pay attention to that third lap if you're if you're wanting to know how these things happen it happened there with a flip of a full second between the third legs um, and that's where the U.S. lost the medal, and where the Polish team won it. So, cool. A little that's, inside baseball for people there. Yeah, yeah. Super <laughs> exciting race. All right, with that, we'll turn our attention to our our main topic today, which is talk about health maintenance for athletes. We'll bring in our guest and kick off that interview. All right, so we're going to welcome Dr. Godfrey to the show. Welcome, Dr. Godfrey. Thanks for having me. You said I can call you Cody, but for the purposes of sounding official, we're going to say Dr. Godfrey today. <laughs> Thank you. I guess I did go to school for that. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. You earned that title. Own it. So we, uh, as we mentioned in the intro, Dr. Godfrey is here to talk about general health maintenance for athletes. And so we're going to dive into that topic with him now. Dr. Godfrey is a family practice practitioner here in Austin with Baylor Scott and White Hospital and clinic system. And He's here to get us educated on what we should we, what we should be doing as athletes in order to stay healthy as we go. Because I think sometimes we have this idea that we're immune because we can run 20 miles on a Saturday that we don't necessarily need to do some of the basic health checks that are important, especially as we age. So one quick anecdote before we jump in, just to kind of set the backdrop, we have a longtime rogue athlete. Dr. Godfrey, who recently had an episode with his heart. And he's a runner, a cyclist, really active guy. I think he would say he generally eats pretty well. Recently, he was having tingling in his arm that caused him to think, hey, I need to go see the doctor. So he saw his primary care provider. And initially, it was sort of they did their basic checks and health checks and Everything seemed to be okay, but he kept having the issue. So he went back again. They ultimately did, I think it was an ultrasound of the heart and found 100% blockage of one of his main arteries. Wow. The only reason he was still able to actually function was the fact that he had some accessory blood vessels that kind of built a pathway around kind of short circuiting the blockage, so to speak. But ultimately he was within an inch of having a major heart attack and potentially dying because he wasn't aware. And then as he dug into it, he found some ha- family history of that kind of thing and ultimately got a stent placed in and now is recovering and doing well and back to cycling and running. But for many of his friends and for those I know in our community, it was a big wake-up call that, hey, you know, just because we're fit and active doesn't mean we can no- necessarily take our health for granted. So with 
So I kind of wanted to set that tone as a backdrop that you know it's really important that we talk about this. And even if you might be listening with a little bit of a skeptic's mind that, hey, I don't need to need, I don't need this. I'm healthy. I generally eat pretty, pretty healthy. That's an example of somebody, at least in our community, that thought the same things and ultimately almost, you know, had a major life event because of it. So on that depressing note, I'd actually like to switch <laughs> to a more, I'd like to switch to a more positive note to start, but let's talk about the good things first and we'll come back to the more depressing things. What are the benefits of maintaining an active lifestyle? Um, so there's a lot of things. So when we first talk about having a healthy lifestyle, what does that mean? Does that mean just walking around or does it mean running or does it just mean eating good on the weekdays and not on the weekends? Um, but an active lifestyle pretty much means having a good diet all the time. Um, you can have your cheat days, whatnot, um, but also staying active pretty much every day. Now you don't have to do it every day. You can have days where you don't, where you're not active. Um, but in general, what we recommend is about 150 minutes a week. So you can break that in about 30 minutes, five days a week, um, of moderate to strenuous exercise. So running's a really good one is you can get a 30 minute run in five days a week and that's pretty active and it's a good active lifestyle. 30 minutes might be short for some people listening. Of course. Can you overdo it? Can you overdo it? You can. Um, what does that look like? And it's more, not so much that you can overdo it in the long term. Like you can build up and build up and create a good endurance. But if you try to overdo it too fast, go from walk, like you don't run at all, or you run 15 minutes a day, and then you're trying to run like two hours, three hours, or run in a marathon on the weekend, you are able to overdo it. The muscles aren't trained for that. Your heart may not be conditioned for that. Um, and that's where you can run into some trouble. So I think most people in our listener base is would generally describe themselves as active. And, you know, I think they take for granted the fact that they generally feel pretty good as a result. Beyond the physical health benefits, what are some other benefits of staying active that maybe we take for granted? So your mood and um, just your general well-being of how you, much you enjoy life has a lot to do with your activity of life. So running and Staying active has shown to be very beneficial to depression and anxiety. Um, your body increases endorphins and helps manage uh, your mental health as well as your physical health. So we'll be happier as a result of it. Yeah, totally. Sounds like this should be easy to sell them on rogue training, right? It should, totally. <laughs> it's, it's a mood builder as well as something to keep you healthy for life. So given... Those benefits, maybe some of those would be obvious for a lot of people. What are some of the issues you see, some risk factors you might see in, in patients that might look healthy on the outside or might describe generally healthy activity levels, like somebody who's maybe already running at least 150 minutes a week? What are still some other risk factors they need to be aware of? Yeah, so people looking healthy on the outside doesn't necessarily mean your body's healthy. Um, so genetic risk factors such as high cholesterol or early heart disease, um, also like congenital or hereditary issues such as blood clots may be something you don't see and you won't see and something that you need to know about in your family history. Uh, also other lifestyle choices that you may consider healthy, but um, excessive drinking or something that you don't really think about as too much um, in terms of your activity doesn't affect how much you run, doesn't affect how you feel but it can put extra strain on your heart that you just don't see on a, on a day-to-day basis. And is it just the heart we're worried about? What else? Um, no. So heart and lungs, um, also blood pressure, which is kind of a combination of your kidneys and your, and your lungs. 
long-term effects of running. If you run too fast too, like say you run a marathon, you're not trained for it. You can have breakdown of your muscles that can cause kidney damage. Um, so there's a lot of things to look out for that maybe on the outside, you don't, you're not necessarily thinking about ahead of time. And for some of those things, you know, what, what would you be looking for if you were an athlete to, uh, to sort of identify them as flags, for example, that might say, you know what, I feel pretty good, but then X starts happening and maybe that's a sign that you need to get something checked out. What might be some flags you would look for as a generally healthy person? Yeah. So there's, there's several, I guess it's easier to specify by body part. So if you're looking at the heart, you're thinking of having chest pain that gets worse as you start exercising more and more, getting short of breath or having the tingling like, like your friend did. Um, also if you get like lightheaded where you don't feel like you're getting enough, basically getting oxygen to the brain that could all be related to the heart. Um, difficulty breathing could be related to the lungs or blood clots or something like that. Um, also we have to talk about just general musculoskeletal injuries. So yes, running, pushing yourself, you're going to have some aches and pains, like as your muscles are working harder, but stuff like pains in your foot or your shins that just doesn't get better can be sign of an of a stress fracture or something that's like more, more dangerous than just, Oh, it's just a little sore from running yesterday. All right, Steve, I'm going to let you jump in here. Cool. Um, so I have a question, Dr. Godfrey about, Tell us a little bit about what it means to be a family practice doctor, and then also then and then describe how that how someone might want to go about choosing the, a, an appropriate primary care physician. So maybe some of our listeners don't really know exactly what it is that you're doing, and also how important it is to have um, someone who is a primary care physician. It seems like everybody just goes to some specialty clinic or have some specialty thing done, but talk to us a little bit about what it is and what that role is and then what people would be looking for. Sure. Um, so a lot, let's start from what, what primary care is in general. So it's not just family medicine, family medicine is part of a giant, a bigger umbrella, um, it, which involves internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, and OBGYN, um, all take care of your basic health needs, um, to some degree. Um, with family medicine, our that our specialty basically encompasses all of those in one. So I will see see pediatric patients all the way up until you're elderly, and everywhere in between. So family medicine, being a family medicine physician, basically means you come in to me with almost any issue that you have, and if I don't have the full answer, I'll give it to a specialist. But I can treat many different aches and pains, and even a lot of the major workups that, that you don't need to see a specialist to to deal with. So then how would somebody choose a good primary care physician? So there's a couple of different things that you might want to think about. Um, one is where are you going to go see your doctor? Cause you don't want to have a doctor that you're never going to be able to get to. So if like you live in a different town, you're not going to pick a primary doctor in another town. So you want to get someone that you can see. Um, you want to meet somebody that is that you can be open with because you need to be able to share all your health and, me- and medical information so the doctor can help you decide what's the best option for you. What are your risk factors for future injuries or other things that you can modify to help prevent those? And someone that practices evidence-based medicine, so they don't—they're giving you advice based on what's been scientifically proven, and not not always just based on what they've seen in the past. How often is it that you see patients after? a crisis happens versus pre proactively. I mean, it seems like more and more in these days, people don't have primary care physicians as much as they used to for a variety of reasons. 
and we won't talk about some of the challenges with our current health system, but how often is that the case? And if you were to have some sort of passionate plea for telling people to go find a provider that they can see when they're healthy to, to establish that relationship, what would be your plea? So the first part of your question is like, how often do I see post-traumatic event? Um, it's probably way more frequent than you'd like to hear. Um, probably more than 50%. It's somebody either they knew somebody who didn't get something caught ahead of time or they had something happen to themselves. And then now they are like, I need someone that can help organize like all my medicine and help figure out, think, figure out how to maintain my health. Um, it's probably about 50% of the time, which is if you're thinking about preventing health, 50% is too much to not to miss. You need to be catching way more than 50%. So if my plea would be get in there early and we can lower that, we can lower that rate to much lower. Like I don't want to give you a number. I'd prefer right. not come in after you have something, get it down to zero, have everybody have a doctor and then you're catching stuff ahead of time. Sure. You're going to miss some things that aren't, aren't apparent or you don't know their family history and then you're going to miss a few things. But as long as that's not 50%, you're going to be doing a lot better. It won't be on the news all the time. Yeah, Dr. Godfrey, I'm I'm always absolutely amazed at the athletes that I work with who don't have a primary care physician. And um, I, I've had the same primary care physician since 1988 when I attended the University of Texas. I have the same doctor, luckily, through that whole time frame. And he would tell you I don't see him enough, but I know that I see him more than most of my athletes see their primary care physician. And He's the, he's the one who said, have you been to the dentist in a while? And I'm like, oh, I hate the dentist. He said, you need to go to the dentist. Turns out I really needed to go to the dentist. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I just think that there's so many other issues that, that, that athletes have that, as Chris said, they just think, oh, I'm, I'm bulletproof. Um, and so I, I agree that I think that this is, this is maybe a topic our listeners will look at and say, oh, I don't really need to listen to this, but I, hopefully they do. And hopefully they can recognize the value of this. I, I have another question for you, which is what, what kind of steps should an athlete take on their, before, in the middle, middle time before they come and see, so let's say somebody goes in and gets a one year checkup or mm-hmm. you know, however often it is that you suggest that I usually go in about once a year. What other things should the athletes be looking for in terms of what they need to be doing for their own regular healthcare maintenance. And then in a sub question for that, is there a difference between men and women for that? Or what are the specific differences or elements between men and women for that? Um, so in general, both men and women should come in about once a year uh, for an annual visit. And at that time you typically do routine blood work, um, especially changes depending on your age. Sometimes you're at higher risk for other things as you get older. So age 30, 40, you're going to start doing more blood work. Um, but as outside of that routine, like you want to be noticeable, noticing things that are different from your normal, say like you're having chest pain or you're having shortness of breath. Those are things you'd want to come back to the doctor outside of your normal routine. Um, eating a healthy diet, maintaining a good exercise habit are things that are going to keep the things that you talk about on that annual visit are going to keep those going well. Um, you almost like, obviously we're talking about physical health, but we're also talking about emotional health and mental health. And so, Again, like we talked about how activity improves depression and anxiety, start looking at your mood. So not just your physical health, but start if your mood changes, like something's going on, like that's some, something else to come back to the doctor and talk about. And does that, does that annual checkup apply for a 20 year old like it does for a 40 year old? Or does it, or is there some point where it's like, okay, I can't, 
just go off of when I get sick or when I feel ill. It's like I've got to go in preemptively every year. Is there an age for that or is it always true? I think it's always true. Like you're going to be doing different things at different ages. So your risk factors for medical problems change based on your age. We start seeing people annually when you're when you're one. You start seeing all through your pediatrics. <laughs> yeah. all your pedi- well, I've all got well checks scheduled for my three kids next month. Yeah, you start doing it as a kid, and why does it change once you turn to be 18 till 30? You stop doing it, and then you start doing it. There's there's still a lot of medical problems that happen between the ages of 18 and 30. Um, and most people get back to the doctor around age 30, like, hey, I'm finally healthy or finally getting older, so I need a doctor. But it's just as important to, to stick with somebody at the younger ages too. Well, yeah, and then they, they understand and have your – history in mind. Plus for me, and I went a period of time where I didn't have a primary care physician after I moved to Austin or from Houston or from Houston to Austin. And then I remember getting sick because I've got three kids and they're all little Petri dishes. And just the idea of finding a doctor, going to see a doctor because I didn't have a primary care physician relationship at the time was daunting. And so generally I would suffer <laughs> through yeah. illness for for just no reason other than the fact that I was lazy and didn't want to <laughs> actually establish care with the primary care physician who got, who I knew I could just call and go see and get, you know, assessed immediately. And then, you know, once I established that relationship, now I have somebody I can call. And so now I'm like on the front end of it. If I, if I have even the slightest inkling of getting sick, I'm calling him to see if I need to go in. And, and I think, as a result, I've short-circuited several potentially longer, you know, sicknesses by just getting in proactively, even when I've had issues. But also now I have somebody who understands my history. And so every time I go in, you know, the visits are pretty basic and simple because it's just a kind of update on the last visit and so forth. What should you expect from an annual checkup? Um so you make a really good point about primary care doctors. Like I didn't get into that before, but having someone who knows you and like knows your history. So it doesn't have to like weed through that every time. Like if you go to a new doctor, they're trying to have to figure out your whole life story in a very short amount of time. So having that primary care doctor who knows your life story going into it can really whittle down what's going on with you in that moment and really help you much faster and easily. Um, and also knows how to talk to you because they know you. And then we, we can figure out the best plan together. And it feels it's a much more mutually beneficial relationship, um, in the long term. but in terms of, um, what to expect from what, a visit, what to expect from a visit. So again, that changes depending on the age. Um, typically you're going to go through your history, see if anything changes your medical history, go through your habits. So you're going to talk about your, your drinking, any sort of smoking you might have to go through your sexual history, but then you also get into a physical, you do a physical, make sure that nothing's wrong there and then do some labs. The labs will depend on what your what your risk factors are, and then that's basically it. Update your vaccines, and it's not that hard. It's pretty easy. And is there anything that you should be specifically asking for, expecting, or is there a pretty standard protocol? It's pretty standard. Um, so when you're coming in for your annual physical, it's not really coming in with a complaint. You're screening for any of the bigger medical problems long term. So it's not it's not a problem based visit. So there's definitely but it's not, it's quicker. So you're, you're there to just figure out, see if there's anything that's you're at risk for having like a heart problem, a lung problem, have some genetic predisposition, predisposition for a disease that you need to look at early. And then you'd come back for anything that you're having, like the, like 
numbness in the arm or chest pain or something, you'd come back for a visit, but then you don't have to go through that whole, that whole spiel again. Cause you know who you are. And for women is an OBGYN annual OBGYN checkup, basically the same thing where they're going to cover both elements in one visit or is that a separate thing? Not necessarily. So some OBGYNs might cover a lot of the same stuff. Um, but that's not always true. Sometimes it's just a routine, um, like sexual, um, like pap smears and mammograms. Um, as a family physician, I do it all. So I would do the pap smears and mammograms for women as well. And it's included in the whole same visit. Um, with the, with the OBGYN, they may check like your cholesterol problems, but they may not handle the same way. And I don't want to talk too much for specifics because I know some will do the full thing and some won't do everything. But if you're a female, you need to understand, you need both and you need to understand whether your OBGYN will do both. Yeah. So you need to make sure that you're not just screening for cancer. You're also checking out your heart and your blood pressure and everything else that comes with the exam. So I have kind of a related question, which, and then Steve, I'll let you go. But one thing I realized, and I had a vitamin D deficiency a year and a half ago Mm -hmm. that resulted in a stress fracture because I wasn't absorbing calcium enough. My wife's a dermatologist, by the way, so she keeps me out of the sun. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of partially blame her for my vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> but anyway, I had a vitamin D deficiency. And it led to other problems. Fortunately, I had somebody who sort of said, hey, you should get this checked because, you know, because of the issues that I've had a few stress fractures that maybe there's a related, you know, deficiency there. Got it checked. And... Um, and so got my blood values checked, but then was also considering that in this conversation as an athlete, it might be important to get regular blood work, not just to understand your general health, but also to understand how your training loads might be impacting your blood values. We have a lot of women in, that might train in our groups that might ultimately have issues with anemia or hematocrit levels because of their training loads and not because of some health problem. So is there any case for an athlete particularly to get more regular blood work? I think there's always a case depending on what you're doing. So everything, so part of the wellness, the annual wellness visit is called risk stratification. So we're trying to figure out what people are at risk for. And then from that, we determine what the next steps should, when should they come back? So say a normal healthy runner in their thirties has no medical problems and they only need to come once a year but say someone on that screening, we find something or we find some risk factor in something they're doing that we would have them come back more regularly for a different screening. And it's really dependent on each person. Um, but yeah, there's definitely cases where we'll find something on that routine screen or routine conversation that needs further or more close attention. And I think at a minimum too, it's, it's a, it's a case of wanting to also understand your baselines. You know, obviously those blood test results will give you a range that's healthy but I know there's also growing thought that you also need to understand your baseline level so that from year to year, you better understand what a variation might look like for you in a given value. Yeah, for the most part, our most human bodies function pretty much the same. So those like standard ranges, like there is a range. So somebody may be on the high end of one, one end and someone may be on the low end of one end and it's all normal. Um, so it is important to look at like, say, you're always on the low end and for some reason on you're on, you're on the high end of normal. It's probably nothing, but it, if you have something else going on, it may, it may be a signal that something's changed. Okay, Steve, I'm going to throw it to you. 
Dr. Goffrey, you talked about um, sort of when you look at your family medical history, your family history, what you said there's a lot of things that that people should be paying attention to. And I think a lot of folks don't really do that. Tell us a little bit about what information that each of our listeners should know about their parents and relatives and and maybe a little bit about like what those main family history issues will be, but also like how many generations matter in that? Like, is that a five generation or, I mean, most people don't even know their fifth generation grandparent or whatever, but give us a little bit of idea because I know family history is such a big part of, of why people get major issues. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, going back five generations would be hard for anyone. Um, <laughs> for the most part, like we expect someone hopefully they'll know within their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles. So basically like two generations, like not going too far. Um, but that's mainly what you're going to be looking for in terms of, obviously if there's something weird going on, like your, your great grandparent, like it's, it's important if you know it, but it's not something we're going to routinely find out. Um, and then what we're looking for. So we're looking for signs of heart disease, especially early heart disease. So someone who's had a heart attack and they're before the age of 40, like that's, that's something that jumps off the page is something that's really worrisome. Um, and some people will say like, Oh, my, my grandpa had a heart attack, but they don't know the age. And so it's really important, like not just to know what the problem was, but some, a little bit of detail about the surrounding scenario was going on. Um, so heart disease, so heart attacks, um, history of heart disease, any genetic abnormalities. So there's a lot of heart problems that runners do die from. And you hear that's some that makes the news is, is genetic abnormalities of the heart. Usually young athletes who die from this, it's like, it's not picked up because it's genetic, but if it's not known, like the family doesn't talk about it, um, it's really important to bring that up so you understand what's going on. Um, other things like cancer, osteoporosis, um, kidney problems, just there's a whole host. It's really important just to find out about your history, but um, any major organ that, that can have a problem, if it does have a problem in your family, it's important to know about. Is one simplifying question, if you could ask basically how everybody died in those two generations? I mean, you know, or at least obviously... You, know, you might still have living parents, but beyond that, you might have some deaths in the family and understanding why each of those deaths happened is probably an important kind of root cause to know, okay, what could be in my future? Does that, does that make yeah. sense? So it'd be important to ask, like, if obviously most, you still mo- usually have most of your living, your parents mostly living, your grandparents may or may not be living depending on how old you are. Um, so asking what, if your parents have medical problems and knowing what theirs are really important and then going to your grandparents or whoever may have died don't just say like they died of this, this organ, like just the heart, try to figure out what's going on with it. What happened and what age did they die? Yeah. And if you had somebody, let's say your grandfather died at the age of 45 of a heart attack, what would that change in terms of your approach with a patient who might be 45? I would probably get them a stress test much earlier than ever. So checking, looking at their vessels in their heart to see if there's any blockages that have not been apparent because they don't have any chest pain yet. Um, but if their relative died at a young age from a heart attack means it probably has a predisposition to form plaques in the arteries and increase your risk of heart attacks. So you would pull forward some of those tests or maybe add tests to the mix Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. Interesting. So corollary question of that, I just submitted a saliva sample to 23 and me waiting. I'm waiting for my, I'm waiting for my DNA assessment, which should come in six to eight weeks according to the app. And, You know, it's funny. My wife got me this for Christmas Uh and she asked me a random question one day. 
which knowing my wife, I should have known she was onto something, but she's like, would you want to know if you had this risk gene for Alzheimer's or whatever, which is one of the things that you can figure out with this test in addition to other things. And I said, yeah, I'd want to know because then I'd want to figure out everything I should be doing to prevent Alzheimer's based on current research, right? I would want to have some idea so that I could be as proactive and preemptive as possible. What is your take on those kind of new genetic testing things for adults? And is there anything I should be looking for when I get the results? I mean, it's your genes. So in theory, they don't change too much. Yes, like like skin cancer, you can have some genetic changes from the sun. Um, but as we found with a lot of diseases, it's not just your genes that cause the problem. It's your genes plus the environmental factors. So I think it's important if, if you're going to do it, not everybody has to do it because um, it can open a can of worms that you're not ready for. Um, but um, In a bad way, right? In both ways. Yeah. I mean, because sometimes people overdo it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like you can find out things that you have theoretically a risk for something that you're never going to actually end up having a risk for, like, or you're never going to encounter, but it's going to be something if you're anxious about something, it's just going to add more anxiety to your life. Um, but if you find out something that you're really at risk for, and it's something that has both genetic and environmental factors, then you can, now you have the power and the knowledge to change those environmental factors in your favor. Which I will do if, yeah. which I will do if I get my results back. Chris, you should be really worried. I think you're going to have to look back and see. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Yeah, no. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know, Steve. Dr. Dr. Godfrey, one of the things we talk to our athletes about a lot, and one of the things I have that many of my athletes have a concern with is, um, we, Chris and I talk all the time about sleep and how important sleep is to their athletic performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have many of my athletes that will tell me, well, I'm just having major problems sleeping or I have this issue where I can't, I can't get to sleep. Can you give, I know that you're most of the time when you talk with your, with your, uh, with your patients, it's, you know, an N of one and you're dealing with that individual person. But given the fact that you're more family practice, tell us a little bit about how important sleep is and what things somebody might be able to do in a natural way to help encourage sleep for them. Um, And then also how sleep might play into a lack of sleep might play into some other medical issues that might come that that might play out. I just think it's so amazing to me how little people are sleeping these days compared to how much I sleep. (laughs) Yeah, no, when you guys asked me to come on here, one of the things I was like, yeah, sleep's going to be number one. I'm going to start talking to people about, um, I mean, for most of your audience, I'm pretty sure that the exercise is not the issue, but for many people not getting active, not getting enough exercise actually makes it harder for people to sleep, but getting regular exercise definitely helps. Um, but our society also functions with cell phones, screens, TVs. Um, so there's a lot of things that going to bed in a quiet, dark environment that's not too warm is actually going to be very beneficial. So there's a lot of things around sleep that sleep hygiene is what we call it. It's not very adequate for a lot of people. So they think like, I'm just going to go through my day and just fall into bed and fall asleep. It's not going to happen. Um, you really have to like train your body to fall asleep. Like if you have any young kids around like any babies, you've got to train them how to sleep in their bed. You've got to kind of train yourself how to sleep in your own bed. So if you, if you keep having a variety of life and say like you're not having the same routine, you're going to bed at different times at night, you're doing things right before bed, your mind's going to keep going, keep going, and it's going to keep you from falling asleep. So one big thing is just to try to stick to routine, 
keep the room keep the room a little bit cool not not dark nor not hot but like probably in the 68 to 70 degree range keep it pretty dark you don't want to have lights distracting you avoid screen time tvs your phone um, about an hour before bed if you can and just try to sit there and go to bed in the same routine over and over and it, it will help you can try melatonin over the counter um, usually the lower doses actually work better it's pretty benign um, you can give that a shot and there's other things that we can do um, but other things that people don't think about are mental health it's like your anxiety depression that's under not treated can be a huge reason why you're not sleeping and then that can cause detriment to the rest of your life so if you're trying to so if you're trying to get up and exercise in the morning but you're not sleeping you're not going to have the rest that you wanted to be able to go out and do that 20 mile run before work it's just not you're not going to have the same energy and you're going to increase your risk for injuries psa folks it's like all the things Dr. Godfrey just said before you take an Ambien. I mean, it's unbelievable to me how many people in this society are are taking Ambien as a sleep aid without trying all the other things you mentioned first. Exactly. Like, we're already too medicated. So please, black out your room and <laughs> turn down the thermostat before you get an Ambien. Now, let's talk about basic nutrition for a second. Obviously, there's a lot in the world today about diet, low fat, low carb, high fat, ketogenic diets, Whole30, all this stuff. What's your basic three bullet points on how to eat a healthy diet that will help prevent some of the heart issues and other things that, that get to people later? So mainly the bullet point is as close to a Mediterranean diet that you can get. Um, and when we think of that as like, instead of having beef and chicken, try to have more fish. Um, if you're going to stick to a meat-based diet, if you're going to do a plant-based diet, then it's about portion size and, and decreasing total m- amounts of fat. Um, it's really, it's a, it's a, obviously it's a very difficult question because everybody has their different views on how they're going to do it. Um, Quantity. So I've you the three bullet points. I say quantity. Don't overeat, because you can overeat whatever you're going to eat. Um, eat well rounded. So try to make sure you're getting enough amino. Like look into what you're eating. Look for amino acids because you want to make sure you have all the building blocks to the muscles in your body. And then hydration. You need to drink water. If you're not drinking water and you're like substituting with diet cokes or energy drinks, you're not getting enough water that is really important in the energy system of your body. So don't overeat, get enough of the building blocks, the vitamins and minerals that you need for your body and water. Hydrate well. Now, what about, you know, a lot of our runners are, and audience members are thinking about how do I get faster? You know, they want to run their next half marathon, 10K marathon faster than the last time. And, you know, we tell them, as Steve mentioned, sleep's a big part of that. If you sleep well, you're going to recover from your workouts. You're going to be able to train harder. What are some other things from an optimizing performance standpoint that you would recommend, whether they be general health things, supplements? I mean, is there, are there some other things you could be doing from a health standpoint to optimize performance and not just stave off the Grim Reaper? Yeah. In theory, you shouldn't need any supplements. If you're having a well-rounded diet, you should be getting everything your body needs. And you can supplement or 
theoretically you could get the same stuff you're getting in supplements in the diet that you have. You could eat more of something and get the same, same amount and it'd probably be safer. Um, anytime you're using a supplement, I'd recommend going run it through, through your doctor first. Cause there's many things that can build up in your system or we've seen people that have liver or kidney damage cause they're taking too much of a supplement and they didn't know about it. Um, in terms of other things you can do sleep, we were talked about, um, everybody's different. It's going to be hard because everybody's not running fast or not faster because of something. And you have to pinpoint what that is. So yeah, if they're not going to the doctor and don't, haven't looked at their labs and see if like they have some sort of metabolic issue, like their thyroid's off or they're anemic. And so they're not getting enough oxygen. Like there's lots of things that could be going on. So someone's running and they finally go to the doctor, find out they're anemic. They're going to run faster the next time. Um, it's kind of, it's a case by case issue of every runner is going to be a little bit different. And which is important to know everybody's, everybody's body works in a little different way. So you're going to have to really modify it individually. One of the things I tell my athletes is that your body is a good judge of a lot of things in terms of how you feel pain. And if you just tune into it, then it'll tell you what, if there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, our bodies are really good at that. And often we forget to listen and so whether it be a pain in your leg that is some soft tissue issue that you need to get addressed or a general malaise that lingers longer than a couple of weeks where you're just not feeling good at all or you're struggling through workouts or you're not able to run like you were a month ago, if you just listen to those signals and then have a primary care provider who you can go check in with and say, hey, look, this is how I'm feeling, and they can help you troubleshoot it, there's magic in that. But oftentimes we just forget to listen. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Can I get an amen, Dr. Godfrey? You're going to get an <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else do you have, Steve? I have another question for Dr. Godfrey. It's a little bit. So over the last, tell me a little bit about how maybe the kinds of things that you're seeing in your offices generally have changed over the last 10 or 15 years. Have there been major changes in terms of, you know, I know you probably deal a good bit with the flu virus and the flu flu related issues, which seem to be maybe getting, I don't know. I don't know if they're historically getting worse than the, the, the media is certainly telling us they are, but what kinds of things have you seen changing over the last 10 years or so in the way that uh, someone might, you as a primary healthcare, healthcare physician might be looking at? I'm just curious, like have, have things changed or is it still, everything's still the same basic issues are happening over and over and over again. You get a lot of the same issues, but again, you're, as you hear on the news, you are getting more diabetes, high blood pressure, um, as our population gets larger in general. Um, but more anecdotally, I am seeing a lot more depression, anxiety, ADHD, which has to do partly with our society and need for like stimulation that we get all the time. Um, so I, I see a lot of like all the things you see on the news, like the weight gains, the obesity problems, I'm seeing more and more of it. Um, but then you're still going to see your run of the mill. You're going to see your flu viruses and yeah, there may be slightly higher this year, but they're lower last year. Or like they'll, they'll fluctuate year right. to year because it's a virus. Um, obviously like we're always at risk for finding new viruses that come up, pop up. And like you, you hear about Ebola like, a couple of years ago, like you're going to find things that pop up here and there and they're going to come in waves. Um, but the bigger issues, like the day-to-day stuff that I'm seeing more and more is the d- diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, depression, Things that are really easy to manage early when you get in, take care of them early. But if you let wait years and years and years and let them do damage to your body over and over, you're playing catch up. 
um, and some damage has already been done and puts you at higher risk for a lot of long-term complications in terms of heart attack, stroke, um, kidney problems. You mentioned depression and anxiety and connected that at least a little bit to screen time and our need for stimulation through phones and so mm-hmm. forth. What What is the current literature on that for adults? I hear about it a lot for kids. I have three kids and everybody's talking about managing screen time and all that. But what about for adults? I mean, what should we be thinking about to have a healthy interaction with our phones or our iPads? I mean, there's not as much science behind how much for adults because we seem to care less as a society about what happens after you become an adult. <laughs> um, but I would say it's probably keep it very similar. It's recommended for PD, for kids to be two hours or less of screen time. I think that's very a day. I, yeah, a day. I mean, that seems, that seems like a it lot. It seems for a like kid, a lot. But, but if you think about adults who come home from work and then sit in front of the TV for several hours before they go to bed, it, it can well, be Well, and every time we check the phone for a minute while we're waiting somewhere. Yeah. And the, the phone has a lot to do with how fast we're waiting for a response and how fast like we're expecting a response from other people without continuing or have our social interaction with other people. So it can change our, our interactions with other people and how much anxiety we have about social interactions. That's my plug for running groups because the beauty of our Saturdays here is people show up at 6 a.m. to go for runs from one hour to four hours long this past Saturday and they don't have screens on them. They are forced to talk to each other for those amounts of time and it's magic in terms of not only building community and having friendships and all that, but also mental health. Everybody walks away a little bit lighter Mm -hmm. because of it. That's great. It's like exactly what I I think it hit every single point I just said. Well, yeah, we'll just get you a prescription pad for that. <laughs> Saturday long runs at Rogue. That'll be that'll be your that'll be your uh, prescription to write for the people that need it. What else, Steve? What are we missing? I don't really have anything else. I, I guess I do have one question. I, I I keep floating this idea over the last. I've been a on and off again meditator for probably the last 15 or 20 years of my life. Are you, are you finding in your practice that, that doctors are, are recommending meditation as a, as a medical benefit or is there still not enough evidentiary based info there to, to do that? No, I think there's enough evidence to say that it definitely benefits the mental health um, and recent actually mental health and just focusing in terms of like, if you're a performance athlete focusing on your breathing um, because you're just hyper aware of, how your body's functioning, but in terms of like anxiety and depression and calming you down and really being in tune with your body, there's, there's definitely some research showing that it's beneficial. Yeah. I keep preaching it, but people keep keep telling me that I'm just talking woo woo shit and (laughs) always makes me crazy. So I'm going to go look for some of those, those, those research projects that some of that research so I can hoist it on my, my athletes that deny doing it. (laughs) What's the app that you recommend, Steve? Um, it's called Headspace. It's fantastic. It's 10 minutes I've heard of that one. for 10 straight days and it's free. You can download it for free. They have other longer meditation protocols you can go through that are fantastic, that are really good as well, that fit a wide range of things from your basic mindfulness sort of practices to even more sort of esoteric, you know, maybe Tibetan Buddhist sort of things. But the 10 days of 10 minutes a day that they have as their first basic program. It's free and it's incredibly well done. And um, 
it is a great gateway to meditation. And one of the things that even some people who have talked to me about it being something they would never do, this got them at least. And once somebody gets about 10 days of it, they start to see the benefit of it. And I don't meditate every day, but I do on a two to three times a week basis, especially when I get into stressful spaces. And um, anyway, yeah, Headspace is a fantastic app. All right. So we're going to wrap it here. Any final thoughts, Dr. Godfrey, for our audience? Nothing really in particular. Um, I think what you guys are doing is great. Just trying to get the word out that whatever your thought, whatever you think of your physical health is not necessarily true unless you really make sure you checked out all the checked all the boxes and make sure you looked at your history and what you're at risk for. Yeah. Don't take it for granted, people. Just because you can run 20 miles on a Saturday doesn't mean everything's perfect inside. Not to scare anybody, but establish that primary primary care physician relationship so that you can see them not only once a year, but also when issues pop up, they know your history, they know what's going on with your health so that it's easier for you as you go. And we would hate to think that anybody would find something crazy in those visits, but that's the point. That's the point is to, to hopefully get ahead of some of these issues that might pop up, whether it be heart disease or high blood pressure or potentially early cancer screenings and things like that. So do it. Go find somebody now and we'll be asking you about it later. Thank you, Dr. Godfrey, for joining us. I did want to put a plug in for Baylor Scott and White. Dr. Godfrey, as we mentioned, is with Baylor Scott and White. He works at the downtown clinic at Brazos and Cesar Chavez. So if you wanted to see him specifically, you can find him there. Or you can go to any one of the 30 access points that Baylor Scott and White has in the Austin area, if you're from Austin. And you can find all of those at bswhealth.com. So go check that out and get an appointment set up. You can schedule it through the website. You don't even have to talk to anybody. It's that easy. So there you go. Our PSA for the day is done. Thanks to everybody for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.